0: Welcome to The Axe Change, the official podcast of the Fred C. Manning School of Business at Acadia University Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Acadia University is a member of the Maple League of Universities, an association of premier, primarily undergraduate universities that consistently rank highest for educational quality in Canada. The School of Business at Acadia University is named after Fred C. Manning, the first person in Canada to receive the honour of having a business school named after him. To learn more about Acadia University and the business school, please visit acadiau.ca and business.acadiau.ca. And now, on to the podcast.
1: Good morning, everyone. My name is Evan Shergold, a senior student here at the F.C. Manning School of Business. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Chris Graham, Chris boasts an impressive and diverse collection of both academic and professional experience. He has studied at Oxford University, the University of Toronto Law School, as well as being an alumnus of Acadia University in the graduating class of 2003. Chris has worked as a lawyer in both Toronto and New York City, as a consultant for a Toronto-based company called Change Connect, and is the founder and principal owner of Tell People Incorporated, a vehicle for teaching storytelling and communication to professionals. Chris is the epitome of a trailblazer and a wonderful example of how one can fuse different professions into an illustrious career. Without further ado, I would like to welcome Chris Graham to the show today, and of course, back to Acadia. Thank you for joining us, Chris. Thanks very much for having me, Evan. I'm glad to be here. So uh, just to kind of start off, Chris, you are an Acadia alumni. I wanted to uh, kind of get an idea about what your experience was like at Acadia, maybe some of the programs, activities, or interests of yours. Uh, it's a great question.
2: Uh, I'm embarrassed a little bit by how far back I have to think to recall this. So I was a business student here, and so I'll, I'll start with that. I uh, worked, you know, worked in the business program uh, actively. I organized the business banquet. That was a thing when I was here. Um, I also I debated a lot when I was here. I used to be a chapel assistant. Okay. I don't know if that's still a big thing here uh, or now. I know the chapel is still here, and so I would volunteer there uh, once or twice a week. And there's a lot. At, the, at least at the time, the chapel was very involved in things on campus. So there was a play every year and things like this. Um, yeah, those are some of the main highlights for me when I was here.
1: Right. So. Um After Akita University and and graduating um, from our business program, uh, you then moved on and studied at the University of Toronto Law School. Um, Why did you decide to go into law? It's a great question. Uh, at the time,
2: I was not ready to go into any of the obvious job opportunities that were available. I didn't really specialize when I was here, I didn't really know uh, what I wanted to do specifically. Uh, and at the time, I think accounting was a big thing, maybe some finance jobs. I had some friends in Calgary who had eradicated it but come from Calgary, and they went back, so this would have been in 2004, so the oil was booming at that time. None of that sort of appealed to me. Uh, and so I decided I would do the hardest thing I could think of, which was to go to law school. Um, my dad is a, a now retired lawyer, so it was just an available option for me. Yeah, and so I can remember, actually, I used to have an office in Rhodes Hall, the old business school, and I applied to, I think, 20 law schools, <laughs> and I was rejected by 18 of them. Wow. And I covered the wall in all of their rejection letters. <laughs> uh, but two accepted me. One of them was the University of Toronto, and that's how I ended up going to toronto law
1: school wow that's uh, quite impressive 18 rejections that probably was a hit to the ego i guess at the point but at least you got into the two and university of toronto law school is also recognized as far as i'm concerned as the top if not one of the top institutions in the country so uh, kudos to you on that um, in what ways would you say that going to law school or getting this legal education has benefited you as a professional
2: Oh, wow. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, lawyers get asked this question a lot, and the sort of pat answer is to say that lawyer, being a lawyer, opens all kinds of doors, and lots of people are lawyers. And that's kind of true, although I i am sad that this will be recorded. But I'm happy to go on record as saying, I think the reason being a lawyer opens a lot of doors is that there are just way too many lawyers to begin with, and they all have to go <laughs> somewhere. Um, but that being said, Professionally, uh, that was a very, it's a very rigorous education. It was very hard and very analytical. And so my analytical skills and my thinking skills were uh, vastly improved by that experience. Also, it just requires a lot of work, like an order of magnitude above what I was doing here at the business school. And so, you know, learning just how to work hard. Uh, asked to chair is uh, was has been extremely valuable especially as an entrepreneur um, and also the context that I gained there, I didn't appreciate this at the time how valuable that network was going to be and I certainly didn't develop it at the time, I just sort of lived at the library, but 10 years on roughly, this is my 11th year since graduating, that network of law students my colleagues is now far and away the most valuable law firm or network I have as I grow tell people being able to reach out to them get them to introduce me to people who buy the services that I'm selling Um, or in some often you know 10 years out they're all doing really interesting things now right in the same way that your colleagues here in 10 years will be doing interesting stuff so yeah I was that's probably something I was very surprised by but pleasantly
1: Definitely. Well, it seems that a legal education is definitely something that opens a lot of doors. uh, And the importance of a network is something that we hear uh, every day in class uh, here at the business department. Um, So what were kind of your next steps after having graduated from the University of Toronto Law? You're kind of ready to hit the ground running. You have the opportunity to practice law. What were uh, kind of your next steps after that?
2: Well, it's an interesting question. saying next steps makes it feel like i had some sort of significant agency in the process and had a plan it certainly did not feel like that at the time um so when i graduated law school i was 27 i think no i take that back i was 24. so and i basically just been nothing but a student my whole life so i had no real world experience no context for what i should do or not And at U of T, uh, some law firms from New York City come onto the campus and they recruit and it's very lovely and special and they fly you down to New York. It's all very shiny. So I thought, that sounds great. That's what I'll do. So I went and did that. That's how I ended up in New York City. Um, And I stayed there for two years and change. And uh, working in New York as a lawyer, I usually describe it as, it's kind of like being at the Olympics, (laughs) but not really liking your sport. So do you know who Michael Phelps is, the swimmer? Right. So like that guy's an amazing athlete, but I never want to go swimming with him because he cares about swimming way more than I do. I see what you mean. And This is kind of what it was like. I used to be a banking lawyer in New York, and those are interesting problems. They're really hard. It's really complicated. But I just don't care about it enough to do it as a full-time gig, 12, 14 hours a day, Uh, which is not to say that it's a bad job. So after about a year of being in New York, I sort of figured out, this is not going to be my thing. And then it took a year to unwind that
1: and find the next step, which for me was going to school in England. Right, at the Oxford University. It's quite a prestigious institution. Uh, tell me about why you decided to go to Oxford University uh, after having a degree in law and you kind of have an abundance of opportunities at your hands. What was the reason that you decided to do that?
2: Oh, I feel like I, I give the least exciting but also most practical responses to things. So. Uh, Partly I, I wanted to go to Oxford because I've never read in the humanities. I have a business degree and then I went to law school, so I wanted to read history or politics or something like this. So I was looking around for that kind of an opportunity. And the short answer is that going to Oxford is the affordable opportunity. So it is so expensive to go to university in the United States of America that even a Wall Street attorney cannot afford it without taking on significant debt. The only opportunity for me to do something like this in Canada would be to go to the foundation year program at King's College. And I flew down and I looked at it, and they were very honest with me. They said, there'll be 198 18-year-olds and you. And so that might not be the best experience. So I said, fair enough. And so I went to England, to Oxford, which is uh, you know very lovely and decadent. And the average age of the, the undergraduates there are, are young, the same age they would be at. Acadia but the sort of academic culture there is very intense and so the intellectual maturity is very high uh, but I wouldn't have to actually live with any of the students and so I could bypass all of the emotional coming-of-age stuff uh, which is very valid and legitimate but not something as a 27-year-old person I want to do over again got that out of right. the way at Acadia so that's how I ended up at Oxford um, Yeah.
1: What was your experience like studying uh, in the UK? <laughs>
2: It's an interesting question. It's lovely. So the the, the format there is very different from the experience here at Acadia. So the terms are eight weeks long, and then you'd get a six-week holiday. And eight weeks, six weeks, and then eight weeks on, and then the summer is four months. So there's a lot of downtime, there's a lot, you're left to yourself, there are no classes, you sort of show up once a week and have a conversation kind of like we're having right now with a tutor, where you talk about a paper you've been working on, but there are no lectures, there's a 30-page reading list you get at the end of, the beginning of the first week, and you kind of work through it at your own pace, and then at the end of three, two or three years, you write 100% exams. So it's very, uh, it's a very mature process, it was great for me as a, um, as a mature student, I'm pretty good at school, so I wasn't really concerned with that outcome. Okay. Uh, to be honest, I still haven't opened my grades. I never even checked. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was very, it's very self-directed. It's very lovely, and decadent is really the only way, I think, to describe it.
1: No, it sounds like an amazing experience. I know I, I have a bunch of friends and myself I've considered going, uh, crossing the border to a different place to try and go to school, and, and uh, definitely it's nice to hear somebody has had a great experience with that um so kind of drawing back to something that you said earlier in our conversation you mentioned how um valuable your network with the university of toronto law school has been Mm -hmm. um but you also are an acadia alumni and i kind of wanted to ask um, have you in your career experienced certain points or encountered situations where being an acadia alumni has kind of paid dividends or is there a network where you're working currently in toronto
2: this is a great question Uh, and the short answer is it's a work in progress so i For most of my time after leaving Acadia and after leaving law school, I wasn't focused on networking at all. And that's partly a function of being a lawyer at a large firm in the United States. There's a lot of institutional clients. There's not a big premium on building a network. I also just wasn't paying attention to it. Once I started my business, I figured out that my law school network was immediately valuable because a lot of my clients are law firms, and so that's the obvious connection for me. So it's only in the last two to three years that I've been investing in building up my uh, various networks that I'm a part of. I started with being a lawyer, so I have two or three years in my law school community. and I am still figuring out how to leverage the Acadia community there isn't there is a there, there's a there is a, a community in Toronto for sure um, but it's for what I'm just not as close to it as I am with my law school community so I'm I'm still working on how to leverage it it's for sure valuable um, I just haven't figured out the way to make it valuable for me so it's a work in progress yeah
1: right well no it's definitely comforting from my perspective being I'm, I'm graduating this year knowing that there is uh, some sense of community still or a connection and tie back to Acadia in some of these massive business hubs and cities so
2: Can I jump in here? Yeah, please. Well,
1: so it's interesting. So I think what I've, and maybe the challenge here is uh,
2: there has to be a reason to reach out to people. Like when I first started networking, I was under the delusion that if somebody went to school with me, they will just hook me up with whatever I need. And there's a tiny bit of, this is a bit true in a tiny sense. Certainly for introductions, that's almost certainly true. But otherwise, you have to have a relationship with somebody. And the value of the network I discovered, and this is maybe obvious to people listening to the podcast is it's an introduction to people to then start building a relationship. So it's slightly easier than a cold call or like bumping into somebody at a cocktail party or something. Um, So this is the value I think of the Acadia community for me and I haven't figured out the reason to engage with people. So it's obvious for me how to talk to lawyers about getting an introduction to somebody at their firm or whatever and we have this shared experience. But I haven't really figured out, this is partly a business challenge, how to like what it is that I would want from people in the Acadia community because they aren't obviously connected to what I'm doing currently in my business
1: I see and and, and it's important I think the takeaway from what you said there is also relationship building and, and the importance of that and how significant it is. Yes, your connection with Acadia is good to get your foot in the door, but it, obviously you have to make strides to build lasting, trusting relationships moving forward. Um, so that's a big, important point for all the listeners.
0: You're listening to The Axe Change, the official podcast of the Fred C. Manning School of Business Administration, Acadia University, Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Podcast host Evan Shergold interviews Chris Graham, innovative entrepreneur, alumni of Oxford University and the University of Toronto Law School. Mr. Graham is founder of Tell People Inc, a vehicle for teaching storytelling and communication to professionals.
1: So Chris, currently you are the founder and principal owner of Tell People Incorporated. Can you tell me a little bit about the art of professional communication and what this idea of storytelling is?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So, I use the phrase storytelling or the term storytelling and communication interchangeably uh, to really convey how it is you take the information or the ideas that are in your brain and communicate them to other people, right? Uh, so, if you imagine talking to somebody, uh, let's say you're pitching them a business idea, you have, as the person talking, a very clear and vivid picture and understanding in your mind of what it is that you want to say what your business is what the opportunities are what the growth is what the benefits will be to the audience etc etc uh, it's like you're watching an HDTV screen in your brain but the challenge is nobody else can see that television screen right nobody in the audience can read your mind Right. And also you can't communicate all of the info on the screen to the people in the audience using your words. Right. It's a very tiny subset of the information that you can communicate. I usually analogize it to you're looking at an HDTV screen in your brain. Your audience is sitting in the next room listening to you talk about it on a tin can telephone. And so storytelling is the solution to this challenge. The way to communicate to people this vivid Uh, idea that you have in your mind or your feelings or your experience in a way that's as compelling as it can be to them, recognizing that they can't read your mind, is to tell them a story about it. So that's what I help people do.
1: That's very interesting. Where did this idea for Tell People kind of sprout from or was conceived?
2: (laughs) It's a great question. So about 10 years ago when I moved back to Toronto from England, uh, I was working on a book project. I was trying to write a novel which I'd never done before and I wanted to meet creative people. And in Toronto, I discovered that there is a huge community of storytellers, people who stand on a stage and tell stories to each other. Sort of like if you imagine stand-up comedy, but stories, not jokes. So there are probably, at the time, there was one or two shows a month where a hundred people would come out each time, listen to like ten storytellers. Now I think there are, there's probably a dozen shows a month. It's amazing how it's grown in the last ten years. And so for the last 10 years, I've just been getting up on stage and learning how to communicate with strangers the hardest way possible. Well, I was also like during this time, I was also being a lawyer back at this Aboriginal firm and so on. But when I stopped being a lawyer and decided to start a business, you know, part of starting a business is just imagining what is it that I'm good at that people might pay money for. And in my case, I have this unique experience telling stories. I also have... Uh, a deep understanding of how people communicate because i have practice it all the time and also have just i read about it a lot and i have this sort of legal legal professional experience that gives me an opportunity to engage with professional service firms or corporations people who might be able to pay for my services Uh, and that was really the genesis of tell people
1: very interesting Um, and it's Something that we hear about all the time, the importance of being able to articulate or communicate a message and how valuable that is to a company, so uh, that's very interesting to hear firsthand. Um, Kind of pivoting a little bit um, in the context of a student or, I guess, for those that are listening. um, Chris, do you have any tips, tricks, or pieces of advice that you might offer a young person who might be considering a career in law, consulting, professional communications, or maybe even all of the above?
2: Uh, this actually, I, was, I said I guest taught a class here yesterday, and somebody asked a similar sort of question. And the answer that I will give is, when I was a student, when I was in your spot, Evan, uh, there are a lot of decisions that you have to make about what to do next, right? And these decisions seem very significant and very important and very hard. Uh, and they are very complex, and it's really hard to know how to make a good decision. Uh, And so what I've discovered in my 10 or 12 years since being in your spot is that the stakes on those decisions are much lower than it feels. Like, it's very difficult to predict what will happen in the next 12 years. I for sure, like, I didn't know what I was going to do when I left Acadia. I for sure knew what I was going to do when I left U of T. I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to work at a very prestigious law firm. Uh, What I'm doing now is not in my brain at all. No way. No way. I love what I'm doing now. It was completely unpredictable. It felt very significant to make a decision to go work in New York. Ultimately, like it was significant. That was a great experience. It's helped my life. But it wasn't, the stakes weren't so final as I thought they were or as they felt at the time, which doesn't mean that the stakes don't feel serious for you now, and it's okay if if it feels very fraught and very difficult. But I wonder if there is some comfort uh, in knowing that it will Uh, it will be fine (laughs) um uh, and largely it will be fine because you can't predict what will actually happen you know actually another anecdote about this is uh you know i had this very prestigious job in new york city pays a lot of money it's kind of like a golden escalator and most people think that that's a very secure thing to do right and so i took my job as a wall street lawyer in 2007 and you probably remember that in 2008 there was the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. Yeah, uh, And so lots of people who had my job lost it. So my girlfriend at the time, l- who also a lawyer, lost her job and also lost her visa in the same week because a visa is tied to your employment. Not, nobody could have predicted this. It was not on the radar at all for us. But the mo- even jobs that seem the most stable uh, are also sometimes not. And so, yeah, the advice I would give is it is you're. There's a lot of freedom to be sort of predictable, predictable or unpredictable and whimsical as you decide what to do, and it's, there is more comfort than perhaps feels in terms of uh, uh, the
1: weight that you're carrying at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And just from my perspective hearing that, it is comforting, absolutely, that there's kind of a theme of an appearance versus reality and that these decisions that we're having, kind of our next chapters, aren't as high stakes. So uh, there is a level, or I guess a threshold of allowance there, which is which is nice. Um, so um, kind of building off of, I know you just spoke about the recession, um, but has there ever been a, a point in your career or maybe a setback or challenge that you've encountered um, And if so, how did you handle that? And is there anything that you might have changed about that experience?
2: I think what I would say here is the setback—the biggest setback I've ever, or the biggest challenge I've ever faced—is when is the death of my mom. So six years ago, she was diagnosed with brain cancer, and over a two-year period, she had a series of brain surgeries, steroid therapies, radiation therapies, and then she ultimately passed away.
1: I'm really sorry to hear that. Oh, thanks, man.
2: Um, So that you know, that came out of nowhere. And it was very difficult for our family to go through that most of we were sort of my dad was her principal caregiver They lived near me in Toronto at the time So I was going back and forth trying to support them But our family just did not have any language for talking about our emotions sort of a classic lost situation We all drink our white wine in separate rooms kind of thing um, And so that made a very difficult situation like basically impossible Because <laughs> um, we weren't prepared and the way I dealt with that was by by drinking heavily and so during that period of time I developed a I just I drank all of the time and basically became addicted to alcohol and so as when mom passed away a lot of the stress was relieved because that was a very challenging situation and so I was able to get some space from what was happening and recognize that alcohol is not a sustainable support system when you're struggling with your emotions and I don't have any other system and so I went straight into therapy Uh, really got serious about mental health and fitness and sleeping and eating and meditation and all of these things basically recognizing that at some point in the future my dad will also pass away and i need to have tools for dealing with that right it's always hard to lose a a parent or a loved one but there are less hard ways for it to happen and so coming out of that experience so that was four almost five years ago has been i've been just on a full-time mission To take care of myself Um, and you know of course uh, everything else in my life has become a lot easier you know I usually tell people that if you have a mental health challenge one it is definitely the case that you can get help for it without putting your life on pause uh, and another way to think about that is if you think you are successful with and you have a mental health challenge, like I was very successful as an attorney while also being addicted to alcohol. Um, think of how much more successful I would have been if I wasn't also addicted to alcohol. And so, yeah, I think you know my in, this is in a way like the the gift from my mom, right? That she's this is her legacy as a much healthier son. Yeah. No, ab-
1: absolutely, and I really appreciate you sharing that personal experience with us because it is truly inspirational to see somebody uh, as professional and successful as you are uh, admit that you do, just like anybody else, go through difficult times and that the response is the most important part and the resilience that you've kind of uh, developed through that experience is uh, very, very clear. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, moving uh, on from that particular topic, uh, I just wanted to kind of get an idea of What do you believe your strongest skill is as a professional or maybe what would you like to work on?
2: Great questions, great questions. So many good questions, Evan. It's like you thought about this in advance. Um, So I think uh, my greatest skill, I guess I would say two things. One is uh, uh, just a capacity for and awareness of the value of hard work. Uh, That was definitely the secret sauce when I was here at Acadia um, and also when I was at law school and when I was a lawyer um most there, there there's very little magic in the world it's uh, or about being successful it's uh, a lot of it is just doing like working hard being conscientious holding yourself accountable so that is a skill that i definitely have the other skill that i have is i'm not sure how to describe this i, I think it's listening to what people actually need um so it's easy to, i think easiest i think to understand this in the context of boss employee and so i am a very i was a very good employee because i would listen hard to what my boss actually wanted or needed and also start to anticipate or think in advance what is the best way for me to deliver this work product given what i know my boss is going to do with the work product so i would sort of anticipate needs that is a very valuable skill at least as a junior attorney i'm sure it is in other uh, professions. That was just my experience. And so now as a business owner, I try very hard to anticipate the needs of my clients. That's how it translates. So those, I think, are two valuable things that I do pretty well. What would I like to get better at? Uh, I would like to get better at selling. That's actually a great answer. Uh, it is, being an entrepreneur is basically synonymous with being a salesperson uh, in, in many, many cases. And I don't have those skills. That was not something that was emphasized in either of the law practices I was doing. I, I mean, when I was a business student, I didn't think about it at all. And for better or worse, you know, I grew up in a, the legal profession, at least at certain levels is, is very patrician. Uh, and so there's there isn't a lot of selling. It's not very scrappy. That's actually kind of looked down on a little bit that you have to sell yourself as opposed to people just coming to you. And so I grew up in that environment. And now that I'm trying to sell, run a business, that that's not a viable startup business plan to wait for people to just come to you and offer their services so that is something i really wish i was better at and uh, i'll be honest part of the way i get better at that is just recognizing it's a deficiency and getting like hiring somebody who's good at it um
1: yeah no right, definitely. Uh, would you go as far as saying that? Um, I guess hindsight's twenty twenty in this case. But um, for uh, if you were could go back in time, would you develop some of those? I guess sales skills uh, earlier on in your career. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't. I guess so.
2: I think like the only way to uh, like the skill that I'm talking about is more like an emotional relationship to selling. And so I I know how to talk to people and explain. You know, here's the offering and so on. And I'm. Reasonably persuasive, but I don't. I don't really think most selling is about tricking people or persuading them. It's just making it very clear, like you have the solution that might be helpful for them. Um, but for me, the like, if going back in the way that you're describing, it would have to have been something like spending some time being a door-to-door salesperson or working at a call center, just to like do it enough times to like not worry about getting rejected or to somehow normalize the behavior of asking people for money.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That is yeah somehow emotionally getting comfortable with that experience yeah that would have been useful
1: yeah definitely um <clears throat> so chris what are some of the biggest uh, trends or changes that you've seen in your industry throughout the course of your career so far i know you've worked in a variety of different industries um so what are some of the biggest trends or changes you've seen and uh, kind of looking forward where do you see things uh, moving from this point
2: So uh, let me talk first about law. The major change that's happening in law, this won't be a surprise to anybody, is technology. And so whether it's vastly enhanced legal research tools, so how do you access a database of case law and regulations, to what are automated machine learning tools able to do for you in terms of reviewing documents or even generating certain kinds of legal advice and decision making. Law firms are, I'm not speaking out of school here, way behind other professional service industries in taking this on for a whole bunch of reasons. That has been a wholesale change. Another big change has been the relationship between um, service provider and customer, so a shift in the balance of power. I kid you not, the law firm that I used to work at in New York was so patrician and esteemed that in the 1990s, it would send out bills that just said four services rendered and then a six-figure number. That was it. <laughs> now the bills are multiple pages long. You have to account for everybody's time, show the value that you delivered, et cetera, et cetera. So there's been a real shift in the power of the customer, competitive markets for law services, things like this. In the professional development space, of the teaching space, which I currently practice in, I mean, I'm pretty new to this, so I'm not sure I can sort of survey the industry in the same way. A challenge for us perennially and also going forward is how to differentiate ourselves from each other. So if you think about being a lawyer, you have to go to law school, pass an exam, and then you have this professional certification. And so then you can be a lawyer and nobody else can be a lawyer. That's not the case in the training space. So a question that I sometimes get from people is like, how are you qualified to do this? And the answer is, well, just because I'm me, you know, of the things I think about, the experience I have, etc. And I'm proud to say that all of the people who have actually worked with me, like my referral uh, rating is 100%. It's People are extremely impressed. It's a very high-quality product. But it's difficult to communicate that in advance. And this is the difference between being a lawyer, where you can ho- literally hold up your degree and you can represent that you have some skills. There isn't the same ability that I've discovered, at least in the training space, the speaking space, the consulting space. And so trying to figure that out uh, at least for myself, is and I'm sure other consultants
1: struggle with this as well. Um, that's something that uh, I'm thinking about and worrying about. Mm-hmm, definitely, uh, we're just getting to the end of our time here, Chris. But I have one more question for you. Um, so, disrupt the conference that is today, uh, as well as Mentor Fest, are opportunities for alumni to give back to the university in a tangible way. Why do you think it's important to share your time, your talent, as well as your insights with current Acadia students?
2: Uh, This is a great question. Um, And I actually, I am a huge believer in mentorship. I mentor students at Acadia, also at my law school, and even at universities I don't attend. (laughs) I mentor students at Ryerson University in Toronto as well, business students as well. Um, And the reason for, the simple reason for me at least is uh, people did it to me. I would never have survived at Acadia or U of T or Oxford or any of these, I would, nothing that I have done in my life has been a solo venture. So many people have supported me, whether it's, and like after my family and mentoring students is a way to recognize and in some ways pay back the support that i had as a student and you know the thing is when you're being mentored like the people who mentored me i'm not in a position really to help them for the most part right when you're a student it's hard to help some business person but that's not the reciprocation you reciprocate by paying it back to a student who comes up behind you so that it's i mean it's like a sort of a karmic ledger like it's important like i i have a lot of debts to mentors that have helped me and the way that I square that slate is by helping students that are coming up plus it also it feels really great you learn about yourself etc cetera, etc cetera. um all of these things yeah
1: yeah well that's uh, really amazing Chris and we all appreciate it as well as I know all the listeners uh tuning in today uh, appreciate uh you sharing your experiences as well as expertise Uh, but with that it looks like that is all the time we have for today on behalf of your fellow fc manning colleagues and chris graham may i thank you for sharing your valuable experiences with us and for inspiring our next steps with that we can conclude this episode of the axe change podcast i am your host evan Shergold, and thank you all very much for tuning in
0: the axe change podcast is produced by the fred c manning school of business administration this is a volunteer production If you would like to donate to help support the Exchange podcast, please see podcast under the news and events tab on the business homepage at business.acadiau.ca. Thank you. Exchange would like to thank Paul Callahan, Jonathan Campbell, Kendra Carmichael, Dwayne Curry, Ian Feltmay, Mike Kennedy, Ryan McNeil, Michael Shepard, and Connor Vibert. Music is Pickup Truck by Silent Partner. Assessed copyright free at the YouTube Audio Library. Follow the Exchange podcast on the News and Events tab on the business homepage or at SoundCloud under Exchange. Until next time, I'm Zoe Croke. yours in Acadia Spirit.